This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. I am delighted to say that with the festive season upon us, the time has come to catch up with Greg Proops. Hey, Greg, how the hell are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you? Happy I'm holidays, fine. as we say here in America. Yeah. Do you, is that a thing now? It's, you, you, it's not happy Christmas. It's always happy holidays. Or is that, is that a new thing or is that an old thing or... Oh, people have said it for ages, but I think it's the groovy thing to say because then it includes non-denominational, non-Christian stuff. Like, for instance, I live in Los Angeles where you'll find that there is a Jewish population and that we're running show business with our horns and our tails. And um, (laughs) we're trying to respect that. And also, of course, Kwanzaa, uh, which is an African-American celebration. So, yeah, Happy Holidays kind of serves so that you don't really uh, although i say merry christmas to people all the time i don't care i love christmas in america when you say happy holidays does that also encompass thanksgiving because there's always this weird thing in the uk that we get movies american movies about thanksgiving and we basically think well it's a christmas movie it's just because we don't really i don't really understand the thanksgiving thing anyway but it's does happy holidays encompass thanksgiving as well or is it just the period around christmas No, it doesn't encompass Thanksgiving. Strangely, it only means Christmas, New Year's, which is the the week that we have the holiday. And then Thanksgiving, you'll say to people, have a great Thanksgiving or whatever. And to us, it's a, you know, it's a completely made up holiday. I'm not sure who's giving thanks and for what. Um, And if we're talking about the... Oh, sorry, No, sorry, but okay, I don't know because I mean, I'm... But aren't, isn't Thanksgiving because the incomers arrived and the indigenous population said, hey, you're going to have a hard time because the winters are really tough. And then they were all going to starve and die. And the native population said, here, let us help you with food and stuff. And they went, hooray, now we'll steal your country. Isn't that the short version? Wow, you've really, uh, it's like you went to my grade school, Mark. Um, (laughs) This is the version we were taught since the ancient times. Yeah, and it's, uh, I used to do a routine about it and I'd say, we're taught a lot of lies in American history. Really, which ones? All of them. And uh, the chief one is Thanksgiving. Um, The pilgrims, as you know, or the Puritans were horrible people and they robbed graves and um, they they, uh, tended to burn Indian villages uh, so there was more instances of them inviting in, uh, indigenous people over and burning their village to the ground or taking it than anything else. But it's a really cute story, and we love it. And also Samoset and Squanto, the two friendly 
uh, Northeastern Indians who befriended the Puritans had been kidnapped on a previous voyage by English people, brought back to England and learned English, which is why they were able to communicate so freely. Uh, but no one ever tells you that part. So uh, it, it's a fun holiday. You get you eat a lot of food. Like Jennifer made a beautiful turkey breast, and we had Brussels sprouts, and she made um, uh, pumpkin pie, which you eat with ice cream. So there's an upside to it. Okay. How's Jennifer doing? She's quite well. Thank you for asking. Uh, she's been making a lot of awesome dishes this week. She made a Cajun shrimp thing the other night that would have blown you away. You had to de you know, you had to take the shells off the shrimp, so it was super messy. So my whole body was covered with, you know, sauce at one point, but really delicious and worth it. And the rice, you know, just soaking in this gravy, just you'd have really liked it. Yeah. So listen, Greg, round about a year ago, you and I were having a conversation in which you were kind of holding my hand because I was thinking this is all going to go wrong. It's going to be terrible. There's no, you know, I thought that the worst was going to happen politically. And you said, it's okay, you know, have faith, bon courage, this, you know, this too will pass. And indeed it did. So look, a year later, a year after, I won't even begin to do the, the, the nicknames for the former guy because you're so much better at it than I am. But how the hell is the, how, how's things looking? Does it feel like, because it feels very much over here like the specter of Christmas past is still hanging around like an old fart in a spacesuit. Although I am quite enjoying keeping up with the January 6th commission, but how are things over there? Well, I mean, from my vantage point as a, a liberal uh, baby-killing coastal elite, um, it, uh, I, I feel like things are a thousand percent better. Obviously, we've got the new strain of COVID, and uh, of the Republicans refuse to accept that there's such a thing as democracy and that Orange 45 is still in his lair issuing proclamations. By the way, he had a concert the other night uh, with another, um, with a sexual offender named Bill Riley. And I can say that he was a sexual offender because you remember he worked for Fox News and was their biggest personality That's really and had to resign after they paid out over $30 million in fines to women. And as a, a, they used to say in England, clearly the act of an innocent man. Um, so uh, he uh, he gave a concert the other night in Florida, and it was about half full. Yeah, they're calling it the History Tour, right? They're calling it the History Tour. It's Bill Riley and Trump sit on stage and talk nonsense to half-empty arenas. And apparently they were encouraging the people who were up in the, the very sparsely populated, you know, upper seats, please come down, please come down, so it looks a little bit more like it's crowded near the front of the stage. Right? It was like playing South of the River in the 90s when I was a comic in England. You know, you'd go like, all right, everybody, move down, move down so that it looks like there's somebody... Because you don't want to, you know, when, when everybody's sitting far away from each other, there's that depression that sets in because there's no cohesive response to anything. You need people together to boo and yay. Uh, so I think that the media is overplaying a lot of things here, Mark, and I think that's why we get the uh, impression we do, even here, that um, it's all over and we're gonna lose and this and that. And I would put forward a couple of things. Um, the economy's rebounding, people are working again, including uh, even lowly stand-up comedian improvisers, we're back at work. So I didn't get to work for 18 months. I'm not saying I had it harder than anyone, but this is the lot of all performing artists. And by the way, by extension, all people who work in theaters, all people who work in venues, you know, a music venue, name the kind of venue, dance, opera, ballet, you know what I mean? So none of us have been able to do anything for a year and a half. So it's really important for us to come back to work uh, in our lives, but also, uh, 
child poverty has been addressed in a major way by this administration. And that is, as William Blake said, the dog starved at the master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. And in order to be a real democracy, you have to look after children. And I think Biden and Harris have really moved forward on that. By the way, everyone in America with kids got a giant check this week that went right into their bank. So the, the, these are the kind of things you don't really hear about. So he's doing really well. I think he's popular with people. I think the media, the media was infatuated, Mark, with Mango Mussolini's cruelty and excess. It created clicks for them. Um, cable news was never more popular. People were subscribing to newspapers. Um, so since the peace scare broke out a year ago, uh, the, you know, they really want to amp things up that everything's agitated all the time. Are there a million problems here? Honey, it's us. Um, yes, of course there are. But I really do think, in by and large, uh, things are much better than they were, even with the specter of the Republicans trying to steal everything starting next year. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I want to bring up. The first one is that, um, you know, a major bill got passed and there was very little fanfare about it. It was one of those extraordinary things when if the Trump administration had managed to get this level of achievement in its first year, you would have heard nothing but it. But in terms of what happened with the Biden administration, they did manage to get a fairly hefty. I mean, I know there are compromises on both sides and I know there are reasons, you know, for the, but it happened and it got done and the scale of it was more than one could have perhaps hoped for. And yet it wasn't trumpeted from the rooftops as a great success. Why not? The media is run by, um, you know, your Rupert Murdoch types. And then the ones who don't get the kind of play that he does, uh, being the incarnate of evil and played by Brian Cox on TV, uh, is uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know... Can I just say instantly, because I, I, interviewed, I interviewed Brian Cox about this, and Brian Cox said definitively, it's not Trump. And he said the reason it's not Trump is very much what, what Bill Forsyth, his you know, fellow Scotsman, said. If you wrote a villain as two-dimensionally terrible as Trump, dramatically it's a disaster. Because in order for a villain to work, they have to have something that you can... But in the case of Trump, I mean, Bill Forsyth was asked about, because Local Hero was talked about um, in terms of that, that brilliant film, right, You've Trump. oil company and all that. Exactly. And he said, no, if I'd written a villain as two-dimensional as Trump, no one would believe it. And I interviewed Brian Cox and I said, you know, is it Trump? He said, no, look, I, he said, I can't stand Trump. He said, but the fact is Trump is not a Shakespearean character. Trump is a two-dimensional wall. And so whatever else you think, he's not playing Trump because he said, if you did, there wouldn't be any resonance to it and succession wouldn't work. I totally, I can understand that. And I agree. He's two-dimensional. Um, he's a bad guy from um, the, what we used to have here a hundred years ago, melodramas, where the, the bad guy was based on John D. Rockefeller and he wore a top hat and he'd come in and twirl his mustache and foreclose on the, the poor girl or tired of the railroad tracks, <laughs> which was a real popular form of entertainment here for a long time. Then the hero would come in at the last minute. It was always about foreclosure, uh, which is still an issue. Huh? Yeah. Evil real estate developers been a through line in American history since God began. And um, Trump's that kind of villain that, <laughs> you know, he's lecherous, he's venal, greedy. Like you say, in order to be Shakespeare, you have to bring that, which Brian Cox does, 
that King Lear part, right, where yeah. it's hubris, it's a terrible failing on his part that he's as evil as he is because he's overestimated his own ego and all that, which yeah. is how... And also but also the, the Lear thing is particularly interesting with succession because the key to Lear is that he desperately wants his children to love him. And the whole folly of Lear is that he wants the two children who don't love him to love him but doesn't see that the child who does love him does. I mean, I think one of the most hilarious things about the recent revelations about the text messages on January the 6th, in which this has come out from the January 6th commission, that even Don Jr. was texting, you know, you've got to get him to stop it. This doesn't look good. But he wasn't texting his dad directly because apparently he doesn't have his dad's mobile well, How about number. that? He was texting the chief of staff, which is like, when, when you, you know what I mean? When, when people phone you, Mark, and they go, um, I have Greg Proops on the line for you. Are you ready for this call? Wait, there's an intermediary? You're not just calling me? <laughs> it was totally... Um, uh, Mr. President, I have your son for you on the line. And I get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. I'm busy. I'm busy. Which one? Which one? No, I don't want either. Yeah, Eric, no, which no. one? I hate them all. <laughs> Tiffany, is she my son? Which one's my son? I never remember. Uh, Baron's never called him because Baron doesn't speak to him as far as I can tell. And Eric, oh, honey, his sons are such a mess. And it was, and it was, and we all know that Don Jr. is a, a, a almost, almost Freudian study in what it's like to want your father's love and not get it. I mean, yeah, he's really, yeah. he got rid of his family. He took up with uh, Kim Guilfoy, who's, as you saw, uh, a kind of a supervillain at the Republican convention when she threw her arms in the air and went, this year, Halloween is ours, or whatever. And uh, <laughs> the, it, it, or Christmas, it's from the movie I'm in. This year, Christmas know, is ours, right? Uh, she, uh, uh, he's begged for it. But then again, 45 Senior was also a Freudian study. His father was so Fred, was so successful at being a terrible, awful villain in New York uh, and real estate magnate and gave and bequeathed him all this money. And then he had the drunk brother, right, who was nice but drunk. And, and, and 45's been begging for affection his whole life. Part of his horrible banality is that underneath it all, you can see that he desperately would have loved to have been popular more than anything yeah. else. And he's not. He never yeah. was. Going back to your uh, question, yeah, sorry, um, if you were going to take the polling from uh, 45's first year, 2017, uh, December 2017, he was polling at a, uh, like a 35, 37% approval rating. Yeah, his numbers were underwater the whole time. Underwater. And Biden's at 49%, which in this day and age is like 80%. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. With the fracturing yeah. of media and everything. So the reason why you're not hearing the good news is uh, the media hooked onto this narrative that the Dems are in disarray. Uh, the Democrats aren't together. They're not organized. Mind you, we've passed more judges than any president since Carter, I think it is. Something like 50, 60 federal judges. By the way, only a few white guys. That's Biden's plan. Like, they only put a few white guys on the court. Uh, 45 put 150 white guys on the federal court, you know. Uh, they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about... The infrastructure bill is literally... The biggest thing in my lifetime since President Johnson. Yeah, When it's I was huge. a little baby. It's huge. And then go back before that FDR. The time when we're like, we're going to, or, or Eisenhower, when we built the highway system in America. The kind of giant sweeping strokes that get dams built, airports fixed. Lead, today we're replacing lead pipes. We're replacing lead pipes in America. America still has lead pipes everywhere because we're, you know, fighting against that second world thing. So I think it, that's, the narrative is so strong and the narrative sells you know, 
Happy good times and peace don't sell the news. The news wants to be sold and the news wants the news to be kind of bad. So they, is is that bill still referred to as build back better? What what what's the what's what's the the kind of the common term for it uh, now? Well, the the one that got passed was the infrastructure bill, infrastructure, which was yeah. fantastically named because as you recall, every week for 4 years uh, 45 would go. It's infrastructure week, and we're really infrastructure week. Infrastructure week. Infrastructure week. This week is infrastructure week. Right? He campaigned on nothing it. happened. He was going to fix the airports. He was going to get us uh, the the energy supply sorted. Didn't do a thing because they were busy snatching and grabbing. So uh, I was I was real chuffed. They called it the infrastructure bill. Now the Build yeah. Back Better one, or the BBB as we call it in the yeah. chattering classes of the media, I think is going to get shelved till next year. Oh, you do. Yeah, they, they want to push the voting rights thing in okay. to show that people that are the core of the Democratic Party, which is, let's face it, black women, uh, uh, black people vote Democrat somewhere upwards of 90%. So in order to uh, not ignore them and to embrace them, the voting rights thing is really important because it's clearly aimed at people of color and poor people. And by people of color, uh, I mean Native Americans as well, Latins, Asians, you know, the you know, the Republicans team were, were pretending that America is um, Bedford Falls in 1945, you know, that it's this white place where, you know, benign lawmen wander around and look after your good. And, you know, everyone's aware that America kind of ever wasn't that. But one Can I ask that? But if you're great, OK, so here's. In terms of you say, okay, the thing that they want to deal with at the moment is voting rights, because um, again, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, incidentally, if you've tuned into this expecting a film conversation, don't worry, get the next podcast. We're just going to do this. <laughs> there may be some films in it. Greg's already done a voice from one of the movies he was in. So, I mean, hey, that's technically a film podcast, but we re- <laughs> this is really what we're going to do. If if it's not your cup of tea, sorry. Um, the voting rights thing, which has been exercising me enormously. So, You've got this amazing gerrymandering going on in terms of the redistricting, which is all essentially to let's win the election by fixing the election. You've got an enormous amount of stuff going on in the country, which is let's, I mean, people have been calling it a coup by stealth because what they're looking to do is to set everything up. So when you get to 2024, the election is kind of won before it's won on, you know, the theory being, okay, we've already rigged it. So it's safe. And the big problem that you have at the moment, it seems to me, is you have the filibuster. Your filibuster is basically a way of stopping legislation getting passed by somebody saying, well, I need to talk for as long as possible until we simply run out of time. And you've got Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, who are basically putting the brakes on overthrowing the filibuster, which it seems to me is a priority. I mean, you just... You have to get rid of the bit of legislation that says you can be in a situation when you have a perfectly sensible piece of legislation moving forward and somebody is able to just say, no, well, I need to talk about it for four hours. And incidentally, at the moment, they don't even have to be on the floor. They just have to all say, oh, we want to talk about it. And one of the solutions is, well, we have to have the talking filibuster, which means if you want to hold this shit up, you actually have to stand up and quack like a duck for four hours. We won't stop you doing it, but it may at least make people look at you and go, hang about a minute, that's unethical. So can you get anywhere with the filibuster or does that need to go first and foremost? Well, that's a good, interesting question. I think we've all seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington where there's an evocative demonstration of the filibuster at the end where he goes hoarse. Uh, I think that, um, you know, Cinema and Manchin are from 
states where we're lucky to have Democratic senators. Uh, okay. West Virginia is extraordinarily white and extraordinary. Well, in the case of Manchin, you basically don't have a Democratic senator. Well, I mean, you know, you do. He supported everything Biden's done almost 100% of the time. He's voted for the infrastructure bill. He doesn't vote like a Republican. So I would argue that he is a Democrat. He's just an, what we call a blue dog. Words, define that for me. What's a, what's, a, what's a blue dog, Greg? Define way that more me. conservative Democrat. The, the Democrat, okay. we're a big tent, as you know. We allow trans people and people of color and people of different indeterminate gender and whatnot and mm-hmm. financial stripe. And the Republican team is sort of a, you know, yay team, 1952, white supremacy kind of thing. So, uh, yes, both of them are being obstreperous. Uh, I think the media really likes to play that up. And I think it obviates a couple of, or obliterates rather, or clouds a few other salient points, which are the Republicans, for some reason, are under no obligation to act even as human beings. In other words, Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Linda Murkowski, uh, Ben Sass, the Republican senators that are thought to have some modicum of brains and um, feelings. Romney, as you recall, voted for impeachment. they feel under no obligation at any point to um, be nice and vote for the Build Back Better program. They would all rather staunchly support everything 45. And I think the media really gets caught up on cinema and mansion because even though they vote with Biden about almost like 90% of the time, uh, they're being cast like they're really holding everything up. Now, I I grant you it's a giant stumbling block. But you've seen the infrastructure bill get passed. You saw the giant relief bill get rolled out. And you've seen all the action with the federal courts and everything. And you've noticed that the government actually reacts now. Like Kentucky, we had a terrible tornado across the the southeast the other day. um, That we're actually responding and sending money and stuff. As opposed to the previous government that literally called states and said, you want to make a deal? Mm -hmm. You're going to play ball with me and then we'll give you some money. If you're not, then... Um, So I wouldn't get too wildly hung up over it, Mark. I think eventually this will get sorted out. And um, you may see cinema and mansion change. I think on one hand, they're really enjoying the media attention because it's all focused on them. But a terrible mistake that we could make as Democrats is to primary them and try to get them out. Kristen Cinema took a seat away from a woman who lost her election, uh, Martha Kelly, and was appointed by the governor of Arizona to the Senate. So she didn't even win the seat she was sitting in, and Cinema removed her from office. And Cinema's bisexual, um, she's a woman. If she's slightly conservative, look, my family's from Arizona. It's a place where people shoot road signs because they're angry at them. You know what I mean? We're talking about a kind of a messed up desert uh, there's obviously lots of blue places like Phoenix and Tucson and whatnot. As soon as you kind of drive a little ways outside of those giant places, it's, you know, it's like America. They're angry. Okay. So, Greg, okay, this is why I like talking to you because, firstly, you're a voice of calm. Secondly, I feel duly chastised and, no, and no, correctly. So, no, 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 no. But, but that's a good thing because if, if the case is that the impression that cinema and uh, mansion are basically obstreperously holding everything up and what you're saying to me is no it's not that simple there is another side to that then great because i would love that to be the case so that's firstly that and bear in mind i'm across the other side of the atlantic 
this what I'm doing to you is like you know you saying you telling me how you know how Boris is doing over here, which I think we probably agree on. But <laughs> I think that the thing that's good about this is that it's encouraging. I mean, one of the things that I that I do regularly is you know I I kind of check the American news fairly obsessively, and there are two schools of thought about what's happening at the moment in terms of the January 6th commission. One of them is nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. They're running the clock out. Why hasn't everyone been, been arrested? Why hasn't everyone been charged? And the other one is it is happening. It's happening in in due process. And the, it's the reason you can't see a whole bunch of fireworks is because that's not how it works. And I sort of swither between the two. But I have to say in the last couple of days and weeks, I have been you know, kind of quietly emboldened by the fact that Mark Meadows has been, you know, referred. We're talking, you know, criminal charges that they did manage to get the text messages, despite the fact that he then suddenly turned around and said, I've refused to cooperate anymore. But they did have those text messages. I think that the sight of Liz Cheney reading out text messages from Fox News hosts who were then on the news proclaiming that the whole thing was an Antifa setup was devastating I thought you know okay finally it looks like we're moving somewhere but do you think in your gut that the January 6th commission is going to get somewhere in terms of achieving some form of justice about what happened on January the 6th do you think they are actually going to get close to the, the, you know, the fact that I think everybody recognises, which is that it was an attempt to overthrow democracy that was absolutely, it was a coup, it was spearheaded from the top, it was organised, it involved burner phones and Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and, you know, the Willard Hotel. Are we, at, are we going to see some form of uh, conclusion to all that that isn't just, yeah, and... My short answer is yes, I believe we will. Good. The long answer is uh, has a couple of uh, points. Um, they are going to try to run off the clock, obviously. And you saw that when they held Meadows in contempt, Congress, the other day, uh, that it was strictly along party lines, except for Kinzinger and Cheney, who voted mm-hmm. to hold him in contempt. All of the rest yeah. of the Republicans in the Congress, many of whom, by the way, are educated people and have law degrees, still voted to not hold him in contempt, even though clearly he's in contempt in so much as he gave evidence to Congress, then refused to appear before them, and then pleaded some nonsense that he's... You can't plead the Fifth Amendment, by the way, Mark, to clear it up for your listeners, unless you accept a, to be deposed, which means you sit in a room and they question you and they record it, your answers. Yeah. He has not... Which means, that you, which means that you have to say, uh, in response to every question, I refuse to answer that question on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. Right. And sometimes the Fifth Amendment, I don't even know if it pertains when you're being petitioned by Congress, because Congress hasn't the power to enforce the law. But in this instance, with this commission, and for instance, Mark Meadows' participation or not lack thereof, even though he barfed up an voluminous amount of evidence that impugns him directly and Mm -hmm. 45 directly, and as we've seen, Trump Jr. directly, and a bunch of Congress people whose names will be disclosed in the very near future. Within the next yeah. week, you will know the name of every single congressman who wrote... Oh, by the way, we know Jim Jordan wrote the one about Pennsylvania because he wrote well, he said he did instead of yeah. PA. 
Oh, right. But he's also, he said that he did, hadn't he? Jim Jordan has now said that, that's, that that was his text. But everybody uh, inferred it. A, a comedian here named Noel Kasler, who's quite a good a pundit as well, uh, immediately picked up on it and went, no one in this country, including me, I play Pennsylvania, and when I advertise or say that I'm going to be in Pennsylvania, it's always I'm going to be in PA. PA. Penn is famous because Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno were molesting boys there, and that's why Penn State is such etched in everyone's mind. And Jim Jordan, of course, as you know, embroiled in a, a cover-up of, uh, uh, of sexually assaulting young boys in Ohio. So Penn is a real signifier. <laughs> it's pretty weird. So uh, to, to move on uh, to answer your question, uh, the media wasn't ready at all for how this was received this week, all this giant evidence and all the bombshells. Um, the public, I think, is of two minds, or several minds. One is, it's been a year almost, you guys, almost a year. We all watched it live on TV on January 6th because we were still locked down on January 6th in, in the United States. Other than the people who, the, the noble people in the healthcare profession and who had to drive trucks and work at pharmacies and grocery stores, those people who had to still work. The rest of us were sitting at home watching it having a heart attack, as you were. Because it happened in live time on telly all day long. Yeah. Including yeah. the vote after, which we all stayed up to watch, right? When, yeah, when democracy yeah. reconvened. Greg, I mean, I, you know, I remember this. They played it live on the TV here. I remember just, just sitting there, like my jaw on the floor. It was astonishing. I had people texting me, um, what is going on? Are we going to make it today? You know what I mean? Literally, the balance mm-hmm. of America hung. Uh, on a string that day with these uh, white supremacist seditionists to attack the White House under the direction of Don. So uh, I think a lot of people are like really ready now to deal with that. And the commission is a very formal way to do it. Benny Thompson, who, and this isn't lost either, and I thought I'd just hit this because you're a student of fiction and also uh, uh, history and pictures and whatnot, movies. Benny Thompson's a black man of a certain age from Mississippi, and he's the chair of the committee. Nancy Pelosi doesn't do anything without a purpose. And the optics of him being the chair of the committee and sitting directly next to him at all times, Dick Cheney's daughter. Yeah. (laughs) That's not, none of this is an accident. This is for you to see, right? And for you to absorb as a, a, a consumer of news. Secondly, uh, Benny Thompson said on the news two days ago when all the, uh, the giant uh, thing hit the fan, we understand the enormity of the moment. And the urgent, he said, his exact words were, we understand the urgency of the moment and we are still going to proceed step by step because we want to lay out the evidence all at once for everyone to see. And that means televised hearings next year, which is two weeks away, you guys, a month from now, if we talk again, the hearings will have started and you will see Republican after Republican get up there and squeal and grass so hard that they will look worse than Terrence Stamp did in the hit. <laughs> so and and think- I think that's going to change people's opinion. Will they fight against it? Yes. Will they lie and dissemble? Yes. Will the media take Biden's side? Who knows? Uh but will normal people actually get the message that the government is trying to take over? Yeah, because it's never a majority of people who want to take over the government with violence, Mark. The people that did it on the day and the people that support it, 20%, 25% of the country. We're not talking yeah. an even split 50-50, which is what the media always portrays everything as. Yeah. We're, 
Most people want to be left alone so that they can earn money and raise their kids and have three square meals a day. That's literally all they want from life. They don't care about politics. That's this many people. 81 million people voted for Biden. No one's ever got that kind of vote count before. And that was in the middle of a plague and a revolution. So I would hold on to those things and take heart that a third of the country is deeply involved in saving democracy and is going to watch these hearings. And then to end on this, because I think this is what everybody wants to know and you want to know. Will people be punished? Will they be tried? Will they be put in prison? Yes. And it won't be the way you think. No one's going to get 20 years for this. A bunch of people like Mark Meadows and uh, maybe some of the Congress people will do three months in jail, six months in jail. You saw what happened with Manafort, Cohen, Papadopoulos, all the people who went to jail during the four years that 45 was in. Even Flynn, who was convicted and then had that overturned. Flynn was about to go to jail. None of them did 10 years in jail, but a bunch of them did time in jail. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's going to happen. People are going to have their money taken away and they're going to have to do time in jail. And therefore, they won't be Congress people anymore or they won't be in politics for the moment. They'll come back like Oliver North and be, you know, spokespeople. Um, That's the kind of punishment I think you're going to see. As far as 45 goes, he's in deep water right now in a lot of different places. And we'll have to see how... What they're trying to do is stall everyone out to the midterm so they can reinstall a Republican government and all that jazz. But mind you, we have a whole other year to go here and things move very quickly. And once you see them on TV lying, you know... I know it's not 1973. When I was a kid, we had Watergate and literally we all came home and watched it. And we were like in 7th and 8th grade. We were like 13, 14 years old. And we still knew who all the players were. You know, <laughs> Judge Sirica yeah. and, and Sam Irvin and, and Howard Baker and uh, Rich, you know, uh, all of them who testified. And uh, things are different now because we're all, you know, we're all obsessed with our little phone all the time. But um, I still think there'll be ramifications. And I pray and hope that everybody takes them seriously. So that's my answer to your question. Things will happen because the law is still enacting, uh, is still enforced in this country, and people have done terribly illegal things like the overthrow of the government. Otherwise, Mark, why would they be hiding so hard? Why would Meadows want to run away? Bannon will testify, but if you let him testify, he'd just lie. So they don't need him to testify, you know what I mean? They're they're indicting the big guy by not testifying. Well, I mean, there's two things. Firstly, of course, you know, the, the, the quote which has come back to haunt Donald Trump is, you know, it, mobsters take the fifth, the mafia takes the fifth. If you have nothing to hide, why do you take the fifth? And so, you know, the whole idea of I refuse to testify, well, why? Secondly, the, the tax returns still not in our purview, but, you know, moving forward every single time it gets knocked back because of, you know, of course, yeah, of course his tax returns should be, exactly, should be. Um, but there are two things that I read that I found quite interesting one of them was that the fox news ratings which took a dive after fox called the election you know uh basically were were retrieved by fox suddenly saying the other thing so it's like they're as long as they were saying actually you know trump not so great their ratings went down and they went oh no no actually no great uh, it was it was all friendly and it was all lovely ratings went back up again so it's okay fine you understand that's a partisan station. It's just all it is is following the ratings. That's fine. You don't have to. You don't have to lay awake at night worrying whether Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity are actually the kind of embodiments of evil. They're just 
people chasing the buck. That's fine. That's that's literally what they're doing. But the other thing is this weird thing about watching Liz Cheney on television going, yes, her, her, yes, do, she's great. And the sight of Liz Cheney reading out the texts from Hannity and Laura Ingram, I was thinking the world's turned upside down. I'm literally sitting here watching the daughter of Dick Cheney doing this stuff. And it was it's everything I can do to stop from getting out a rattle and going, yeah, you know, how does that make you feel? Well, right. I, I never root for any Republicans. And I felt like Dick Cheney was one of America's great war criminals. Uh, the eight yeah. years and the two rigged elections that he presided over. And let's face it, he was the de facto president. If there was ever a figurehead, W was the figurehead. But yeah. W had a bunch of seasoned professionals, many of whom went back to the Nixon and Ford administrations, i.e. Dick Cheney, yeah. many of whom worked for his father, H.W., i.e. Dick Cheney, Secretary of Defense. Um, and they knew the game. So that's why they were able to rig it invade the Middle East, destabilize it, take the money, have the corporations they work for reap the benefits. And now we're finding that this is too far for them. This is too far for that lot. Uh, so it's a very odd position to find myself in rooting for Liz Cheney. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's the, it, there is no difference in the Republican Party. It's always been vile my whole lifetime. We're talking about Nixon, Reagan, HW, W, and 45. That's who I've had as presidents. Oh, Eisenhower when I was born. Um, but so it's not like they were not always lying, cheating, stealing, and having everyone in their administration indicted, which you'll find all of those presidents did. Um, and then H.W. pardoned everybody from Contragate uh, because a bunch of people went to jail, if you recall, when Reagan was president. Mm -hmm. And 300 people left under a cloud, right? Uh, in any case, uh, uh, now I've forgotten the thread of your question here, and I'm about to push forward. With you were I was I was asking you how it made you feel to oh, you know to, to look at to look at Liz Cheney and go that's the good that's the good guy. I felt like uh, Cheney and W, if we lived in a real just world, would have been brought in front of the Hague, um, possibly Tony Blair as well. You know what I mean? And, and the, there's a lot of people who were guilty uh, of that heinous crime of fighting that t those terrible wars against Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but as I say, evidently there was a measure of democracy left within them. Um, you know, W congratulated Obama when he was made president and mm -hmm. shook his hand and there was a peaceful transition of power. Mind you, Cheney burned all his records, if you recall, the fire that happened and showed up in a wheelchair like Mr. Potter, my second it's a Wonderful Life reference of the day. But he did show up it's in a wheelchair very, with Mr. He's being very good with that at the moment. Yeah, and was a horrible. Uh, but they didn't say they didn't win. You know what I mean? No. Nobody pushed McCain like it was all rigged or anything like that. And yeah. I think that's the bridge too far. What we've seen is, in my lifetime, Nixon and them vilified the Russians, Reagan vilified the Russians, and now we see that all along the Russians really were who they were kind of dancing for and that this lot is particularly your 45 and uh you mentioned uh Hannity and um Carlson they're showing Tucker Carlson and Hannity's I believe one of their shows is being shown in Russia right now they they're airing it so that ought to give you a good idea of what how the Russian government feels about the yeah. kind of propaganda I mean Tucker Tucker Carlson is kind of interesting because he just looks 
it's somebody made this he, he looks like one of the you know one of the proto men at the beginning of 2001 being stunned by the apparition of the monolith his 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 permanent expression is it's it's like you know whoa he just constantly looks surprised at the world i mean i i i imagine he's an idiot but that's fine but as i said the kind of the thing that that calms that for me is he's just an idiot chasing the buck i mean he's you know his ratings are good and you know, Fox News does this thing and their ratings go up. They do this other thing, their ratings go down. Okay, so you do this thing. You put out the idiot to look astonished and, you know, and then Hannity, who just always looked to me like a Thunderbird puppet. I always thought Hannity was just a kind of gag until I suddenly realized he was, in fact, incredibly popular. But in a way, Fox News is fine now because it's just, oh, I just understand. It's literally, it's just a pyramid scheme. It's just, a, that is all it is. It's not even an ideology. It's just a, it's just a pyramid scheme. So I'm going to ask you one last thing on this before we move on to another subject. There was a suggestion recently that the reason it took Trump so long to finally record, and I think it was six goes he took at doing the video message whilst he was attempting to, they said, just, just tell the rioters to go home. And he did five versions in which he, he wouldn't say it. And then finally he did a version in which he said, we love you, you're very special people, but please go home. And the, the feeling now is that the reason it took as long as it did was because they did think that they might win. They did think that they actually might successfully overturn democracy. That the reason it took so long was he was genuinely sitting there thinking, I might, I might triumph. And I think that's almost the most sinister thing. It's one thing to think he was sitting there just gleefully watching the world burn because he's an evil fuckhead. It's another thing to think, no, what he was doing was waiting to see if he could win it, if he could overturn democracy. And only when it was apparent that he couldn't did he finally do the thing. Where do you stand on that? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think he did everything he could to overturn democracy. I don't think he has a moral bone in his body. I don't think there's any compass that leads him to do anything but burn with raw self-interest. And um, um, because he's a criminal and a criminal mind, um, and this is the thing I really object to, Mark, um, people like him and of his ilk, uh, Mike Flynn, Manafort, uh, Mark Meadows, whoever you want to name, Kaylee McKinney, uh, all of his spokespeople, they believe in a zero-sum game world that no one is not crooked, that everyone can be bought, and that everything is a, a, a transaction, that the world is a transaction. I, yeah. I, I, for lack of a better term, fuck you and you fuck me and that's how the world is. They don't understand that there are people of integrity who actually care about things in the world and that, I think, is kind of their undoing. Was he gleefully laughing over the uh, demise of democracy? Yes. Did he think he could win on the day? He rolled the dice. Uh, as Caesar said, the die is cast. When he had that giant rally that morning, he knew he had his ragtag army showing up because they'd organized that. Yeah. And But they didn't have a great plan, as you noticed. His plan was to withhold the National Guard, withhold the police, let it drag out as long as possible so that these knuckleheads could get as close as they could, which they did. Um, so yeah, I think he would burn it all down because that's the position of a terrible criminal and that's what we're fighting against. What's more odious than his personal evil is that the entire Republican party is so cowed and frightened, except for evidently Liz Cheney and Adam King, uh, who by the way, never voted for the infrastructure bill, aren't going to vote for bill back better, aren't going to vote for the voting rights bills. 
So let's not get too crazy over there. They're not exactly walking on water, but they are showing a no, modicum. I, no, I mean, this is this is why I say the Cheney thing is so strange because she is on, you know, voted. Absolutely. She's not on your side. She's not on our side. She's on the other side. But there she is sitting there reading out these texts. And you think reading it out with something that sounds like moral authority and the whole on my insides are turning upside down thinking, okay, this is how far we've come. This is how far we've come that I'm literally sitting there going, yes, you keep keep talking. Well, remember the old man was uh, Herbert's secretary of defense. And when Herbert Walker lost, he wrote a lovely letter to Clinton. He welcomed him to the White House. You may notice that 45 didn't even show up for the inauguration. He acted like a deposed dictator. I was really surprised he didn't run away to another country, but he ran to Florida, which is his foreign country. And by the way, Mark, I'd like to put this forward, and you know, you're know, you going to think I'm insane. There's a chance he'll run anyway, and I don't mean for president. I mean flee. If the heat oh, you get, think? Oh, if the heat gets too hot. And by the way, Saudi won't take him. He's going to end up like, uh, um, uh, who's that other creep that lives in Moscow? Uh, Where do we? <laughs> right. He, he's going to he's going to run off to a country that'll take him like Idi Amin who ended up in Saudi. But the problem is we're allies with Saudi. We really are. We're still in bed with him. It's not like that changed or anything. Um mm. He, he, I could see him splitting. And as okay. my manager uh, here in Hollywood said to me, and all, by the way, all show business is a zero-sum game, uh, said to me at the very beginning of this, we had lunch one day after 45 was elected, and he said, I believe that he will throw everyone under the bus before he gets done. Yeah. And including, and that meant, Including the children. Yeah. And that's yeah. the non-Shakespeare part of it or whatever. 
as you, I think you've demonstrated in this conversation, I mean, I'm somebody who borders on the brink of hysteria most of the time and often ill-informed hysteria, incidentally. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm aware that I'm kind of, I'm like a caricature of a kind of annoyed liberal who's just permanently on the point of exploding. And believe me, it's not something I'm proud of. I wish that I was more like you. But I think it's, I think there is something to be said for hearing those voices. And I think it's really reassuring to hear somebody in the political, you know, position that you're in, from your, you know, from your political belief, say, no, look, it's not all going to hell in a handcart. It's okay. You held my hand through this a year ago, and I will never forget that you did, because it's made me think, okay, well, maybe, you know, the wheels of democracy move slowly, but, you know, what's it, the arc of the, you know, it bends towards liberty and freedom and so maybe all that is happening and I think that the more that voices like yours get heard the more people can kind of take a bit of a of a breath I have a a friend in America who's a judge and he's quite a high up judge and when the Supreme Court stuff was happening he said look the thing you have to remember is that in the end most judges are judges first you know that regardless of political persuasion they they won't just ride roughshod over the law because they are judges, you know, they, they may bend and twist and all the rest of it, but they, they are working within a legal system. And I think that, you know, you've invoked It's a Wonderful Life twice in this conversation. And, you know, I love that film, whatever problems one may have with it. I love that film. And I love that film because it's, it's a kind of, it will be all right, because just by being straightforward and decent and honest the world will be a better place. And I think the fact that in the middle of all this, you can reference that makes me think, well, you know, maybe, maybe everything, maybe everything will be all right. And maybe in 10 years time, we'll be able to look back on this and go, do you remember that mad period when the whole of democracy was on fire? What was all that about? And I talking to you, I think maybe that is the case. You know, maybe we are moving that way. Are you still as positive as you always were? Well, I mean, it's a trying, you know. Uh, I burn with hatred for lots of different people. <laughs> no, you and, don't. And I burn you with don't, anger. Greg. Well, I mean, you I don't. don't. You, may be, you may be angry, but you don't burn with hatred. You yeah. don't burn with hatred. You, the, the angrier you get, the funnier you get, but you, there isn't an ounce of hatred in you. That's very sweet of you. Um, I, I, I will never, uh, you know, forget that one party was in power when uh, the last four years... And that COVID happened and that they didn't do a thing about it. And they actually are actively still promoting it all the time and promoting people getting it. Um, you know, there was an, another edict out of Texas today. Uh, I can't forgive or forget that at all. Um, but yes, I do believe that as, as you quoted Martin Luther King, uh, the, the moral arc of the universe is slow, but it swings toward justice. Uh, the people that are in office now, and as you say, the judges, for instance, the other day with his tax returns, the judge that blocked it and said the tax returns have to be revealed to Congress was one of his appointees. Mm -hmm. And not only did he rule on that, he wrote a bunch of uh, um, citations citing the Supreme Court, which uh, illegal observers here would say is begging the Supreme Court to weigh in on this the legality of him not wanting to show his tax returns when he has to. And yeah. 
I even think this Supreme Court might balk, which they do, as you've seen over the years, sometimes upholding Nazism, and go, uh, they tend to punt when that comes toward them. You know what I mean? They kick it back down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is their way of going, we don't want any part of this. We don't want to be the ones who put our name on this. So I think that, yes. Uh, do I think all people are good? No. Um, democracy held during the worst period of my life, which was last year, November, when we were talking. Then again, last year in December, when they finally decided it. And then again, January 6th, when everything went to hell in a handbasket. It held together through the worst time I can remember. Um, the 1850s, believe me, white supremacy was the order of the day. The government was a white supremacist government. We've had that a lot in this country. So, yeah. Hey, Greg, you seen any good movies recently? Uh, thank you for changing. Uh, let's see, what have <laughs> I seen? I've been watching a lot of old movies, of course. What have you watched? What have you watched? Uh, well, we watched uh, Igby Goes Down the other day, which... Uh, oh, hey, I like Igby Goes Down. I like Igby Goes Down. Right? It's a great picture. Yeah. Uh, we, we're flipping by, and cable right now is showing all of the movies from the 90s and early 2000s. And um, because Kieran is so wonderful in succession, yeah, uh, and he hadn't had a lot of great roles in between Igby and succession, you know? Um, yeah. But Igby, for your viewers, listeners, um, is a really mordant and uh, sort of darkly humorous look at coming of age. It, you know, literally teenagers with all the problems. Jennifer and I always thought it was a really great comedy, and we showed it at the film club several years ago, and the audience sat mortified. through the- wow. No one would laugh yeah. at anything. Shall I tell you, I tell you, I tell you my favourite line in Igby Goes Down? When he says, we all learned an important lesson about gun safety that day. I just think it's just delivered perfectly. It's just fantastic. I was watching it the other night, and my favourite line is, Claire Dane says to him, they're having dinner or lunch in the diner. And Igby's clearly, what, 15, 16? He should be in high school. And she goes, how come you're not in school? And he goes, sheer ingenuity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we watched that one and then we're I'm so we... glad God I'm so glad because I I haven't even heard I mean I reviewed it when it came out and I liked it and I haven't even in fact funnily enough I wrote a review of it in The Observer and I'd only been writing for The Observer quite briefly and my mum read the review and she went well who would want to see a film like that and I just <laughs> it's real pointed I mean you know the problem with the film is it's real honest and it's honest mm. about families and that dynamic and I think that hits people a little too hard quite frankly I dreamt about it after I watched it I'm, all of a sudden my wow. family came boiling back um, Greg I'm so I'm so pleased that you brought that up because I haven't heard that film referred to in years so wow okay cool great script and, and beautifully yeah. acted uh, Susan Sarandon who I'm not a huge political fan of is bloody marvelous in it Goldblum plays dying. an evil, cold guy, which he never plays. Jeff Goldblum's usually warm and engaging, and he's kind of a creep in that one. And Kieran's fabulous. What's his name? Ryan Felipe, who's almost always yeah. a kind of a dull lead, plays a real arch, awful person in it. I mean, yeah. everybody gets a chance to stretch in it a little, which is nice. It's a character yeah. study, kind of, you know. And, you know, they compare it to Salinger, but it's like, it's not Wes Anderson because it's not as glib as Wes Anderson. It's No, it's, no, it's much nastier. It's much nastier. Yeah. As I said, that thing about we all learned an important lesson in gun safety that day is like a really, really dark line. <laughs> 
Okay, great. So what else have you been watching? Uh, well, well, Jennifer's uh, been curating the film club, and we showed um, – what did we show? We showed Mr. Hulo's Holiday a couple months okay. ago, uh, yeah. which people – I will – to re- you know, you say that I give you hope to carry on like Jerry Lewis. Um, uh, we showed it on a Tuesday night in Los Feliz, which is a hipster neighborhood here in L.A. you're familiar with, yeah. and yeah. which is where our film club is now. And we had 150 people in on a Tuesday night howling at a 60-year-old silent movie from France. Yeah. And that was nice. My dad took me to see Monsieur Le Zolliday. Um We went to see it at the, the Everyman in Hampstead, which is a you know, cinema quite near to it. And he said, you have to see this film. It's the funniest thing. And my dad had introduced me to the Marx Brothers. And so I kind of thought, okay, well, he's quite hip because I like the Marx Brothers. And then he took me to see And I remember the first 15 minutes of Monsieur Le going, I, what, 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 and then starting to, because the whole thing was at that point, I don't think I was kind of that attuned to physical comedy. It was much more kind of verbal stuff, but you get into the rhythm of Monsieur Lou and it's, and it's fantastic. And incidentally, all that, did you see the stuff recently in the Edgar Wright documentary that Sparks nearly ended up making a film with Jacques Tati? Really? And wouldn't that, wouldn't, yeah. So they were, they were, they were working with Jacques Tati and it was an unmade project that he was, they were going to play, um, the executives at a television station in which he is involved in this this whole thing nearly happened and then it didn't so the fact that Sparks finally this year ended up you know Annette opened uh, Cannes which is directed by Elias Carrex and yeah they nearly made a film with Jacques Tati all those years ago and we just think wow wow somewhere out there there's, there's this unmade Jacques Tati film with Sparks yeah isn't that that's great? fantastic and you can imagine them uh, being playing TV executives in one of his movies yeah, yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. he's such a great uh, Jacques Tati. Uh, you know the way he characterizes people. You know the two dimensions that they get to portray in the movies are often great. Yeah. Also, yeah. I love him because he's always the nice person at the end of the day, no matter how awkward and abrupt and bourgeois he is. Everyone else yeah. is more bourgeois than him. <laughs> Do you love playtime? Playtime is awesome, and talk about great, really using the medium. You know, the do- the slamming door gag with the silent yeah. door and the driveway, the bloody driveway that he keeps walking up and down. Um, I love all his movies. Mon Uncle is a... But he's got heart. Uh, he reminds you of, like, when Laurel and Hardy are at their very best, when they're when yeah. they're, you're actually moved. Because Laurel and Hardy, they oftentimes, just slapstick and they beat on each other. But every once in a while, they get to a point where they actually move you. And Jacques Tati, I think cuts that medium between Chaplin where a lot of people think Chaplin's maudlin. But the truth is, you have to remember, he came from a Victorian background and people were still in that mindset then. So to have a crying kid be torn away from you in a car, you know, and all those things that he does. Yeah. Well, we were filming today in the Cinema Museum, which is, you know, the old workhouse, you know, it's Chaplin's old stomping ground. And there's this huge, beautiful sculpture of Chaplin and all this Chaplin memorabilia. And I remember... My friend Mike Hammond, who's is in the band, and he's a, a real Chaplin fan. He's you know written about and loved Chaplin for ages. And when we first knew each other, I I just pulled out the oh yeah, well you know Chaplin's maudlin, but Buster Keaton is an archic. Ah, that, you know, that one. That's the the thing. And literally, he gave me this look like yeah, you really don't know Chaplin, do you? And he went so you know uh, which Monsieur Verdu, what, what do you think about that? And I went, pardon. You know, he went, you know, the serial killer film. I went, pardon? And he went, yeah, the Chaplin serial killer film that you haven't said, pardon? So I do think that whole idea that, you know, Chaplin is maudlin and Keaton is funny. I mean, I think Keaton is very funny, but I, I you know, I've kind of 
my dark heart has warmed to Chaplin just because I do. Th- I think there. I think there is the anarchy of the the little guy in in all of that. And I, you know, I, I it was just a snobby position that I adopted because it sounded cool and because I'd heard Terry Gilliam say it. And I had this terrible thing about if Terry Gilliam said something out loud, I'd repeat it because it. It must be right. Right. Well, I think a lot of people still feel that way, and it's a mischaracterization. Uh, I think I agree with you. Uh, Chaplin, uh, you'll find when you watch some of the Keaton films, there's a lot of racist jokes that kind of sneak in there, which is disappointing. Um, But again, completely in period. But uh, especially like Easy Street, The Immigrant, the the, the teen films, uh, and his giant features... Let's be honest, the gold rush, whatnot. Uh, he's a genius. There's a reason why he's Chaplin. And it's not because yeah. he was maudlin. It's just that he, I think he gets accused of it by later generations. Yeah. You know, yeah. but yeah. Uh, what did W.C. Yeah. Field say? He's a goddamn ballet dancer. And if I catch him, I'm going to kill him. That's my favorite <laughs> quote about Chaplin. <laughs> and Fields would have done anything to be a silent star. He really would have. It was sound that made him. Because he's in a bunch of silent movies, but he's not that funny. And then when sound comes and Fields gets to be the horrible miscreant that he is, then he's funny. Um, yeah. And then so we then we showed um, <clears throat> Lady uh, Lady. Uh, what's the Hitchcock one where she's she's on the train? Not strange. The, the Lady Vanishes. The Lady Thank Vanishes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, which Jennifer chose and is such a brilliant Hitchcock film and has mm-hmm. every kind of element in it and is a real. Like the thing that Hitchcock gets underplayed for, he made a lot of anti-fascist movies. Obviously, during the war, the real overt ones, and then Saboteur and, you know, Foreign Correspondent and whatnot, uh, Notorious. But even before the war, he's decidedly on the side of right. And if you recall, like in the, uh, um, what's the Wes Anderson one, the Grand Budapest yeah, Grand Budapest Hotel. In in the Chaplin, I mean, in the uh, uh, Hitchcock, uh, Lady Vanishes, they're in a fictional Nazi country, you know, uh, which is clearly Germany, and uh, with all the chicanery, and it's a great caper film. I, I I advise your audiences to get there. Michael Redgrave is super sexy in it, um, and it's got a little more uh, hot situations than. Hitchcock usually does. There's the girls in the hotel <laughs> room in their underwear like, and, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. But that, that sounds like a classification thing, like a rating thing. Contains hot situations. <laughs> well, you know, he gets, he gets prudy. Uh, but, I mean, again, this is a filmmaker <clears throat> who in 1959 closes a movie with, you see uh, Eva Marie Sainte and Cary Grant get together in a, in a Pullman berth and then a train goes into a tunnel and the end. And you're like, wow, that's taking me back to the silent era. <laughs> and you'll love what we're showing Tuesday, uh, Die Hard, because it's, oh. it's um, Hollywood's favorite uh, oh. Christmas movie. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, there's no redeeming social value to it at all, but it is a superb caper film. And John right. uh, McTurnan, who did time in prison for hiring people to beat people and kill people, um, the director of the movie, uh, awesomely a felon with a prison record, uh, really studied silent movies for the movie. So the next time you watch Die Hard, uh, the, the soundtrack's astonishing, but also it, it really is the editing and the, um, the content of the movie is, is fairly brilliant considering it's a glib 
you know, caper film or whatever with lots of extraordinary violence that could never happen. People jumping out of windows and, you know, things blowing up. And... But the thing, with, the thing with Die Hard, you know, quite apart from the fact that, of course, it's, you know, one of the greatest Christmas films. And, you know, I think that's no matter what Bruce Willis thinks, we, we all know that that's the case. One of the things with Die Hard that's so brilliant is that it is, on the one hand, it is the one-sentence idea, which is it is cowboys and Indians in the towering inferno, which is genius. You just go, fine, yes, that's right. It's like shark exorcist. Yes, just that, you know. And the other thing is that all the way through, I remember the first time I saw it, I saw it in a cinema in Newcastle, and I'd seen a review of it that said, believe me, this is not the movie you think it is. This is a much better, funnier, smarter movie than you think it is. And I didn't know Bruce Willis, because I didn't, I didn't, I'd never seen Moonlighting or anything. And I just, 10 minutes in, I was completely sold. And yes, Alan Rickman is brilliant, but so is Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is properly brilliant in that film, because he does the thing that later on, Tarantino talked about him as being a proper movie star. He had the, you know, that kind of barrel-chested, you know, bullet-headed thing that, that, that he had. And in Die Hard, he is a proper movie star. He's just... It's, it's so easy to just go, yeah, absolutely, you know, and fine. And I know the whole thing about the guy who's desk-bound because he can't shoot people. And, hey, the happy ending is he can shoot people. And, you know, it's just like... But all the stuff like, you know, and the quarterback is toast. The, just the way that stuff is delivered, it's funny. And the fact that the, 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 you know, the gang, who of course are, they're just, you know, they're just villains. But the whole thing is at the beginning, they look like they're terrorists. They, I think this is a point that you made. They like dance around the set. It's kind of, it's like some kind of weird performance ballet going on that happens to involve machine guns and rocket launchers. I love that film. I, I just think it's joyous, absolutely joyous. I'm pretty happy about it because we showed it several years ago before in the before times, as we call them here. And um, oh my God, the, you couldn't buy a ticket for this. And I mean, this is a movie that's shown on TV every minute of the day. Like who hasn't seen it? <laughs> so before the movie started, I said to the theater, is there anyone here who hasn't seen this movie? And two kids went, we haven't. And I went, spoiler alert. You know, like, it's a movie that everyone's seen, but everyone wants to get together and see it at Christmas here in Los Angeles yeah. because it's that movie. You laugh. You, you know, there's the there's the 1950s touching part. Tell my wife. She's yeah. the best thing that ever happened to me. There's literally that line. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. Like, it's like a soap opera. Yeah, it's it's awesome. So thank you for that. And at the end when she says, Holly McLean. Holly McLean, because she's, you know, McLean. Right? Yes. You know, they're, gonna, they're together again. They've made up. It's all great. The, it's brilliant. The guy gets to shoot people and she uh, abdicates her independence from him. And that's the happy ending of the movie. And then A Christmas Carol to close. And we're all, hey, this movie was fun. People literally, they leave the theater buzzing and talking. And that's how you, you're, you know, you, you're an astute film critic. When people leave the movie theater and they're blah, 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 you know that it's a good movie. When people leave the yeah. theater like this, then you know they've seen like, you know, Tarkovsky or whatever. Let me tell you a, a story. We should probably stop at some point, but let me tell you a story. When I was doing the Exorcist documentary all those years ago, when, you know, you and I were hanging out uh, in Los Angeles and you, we had an evening in the Chateau Marmont in which you made me laugh so much that my face started to hurt and I had to go to bed because I couldn't take the pain because you were doing Karis impressions. You were going, dear me, dear me, why you did this to me, dear me? Anyway, 
when we were doing that, one of the people that we interviewed was Joe Himes, who was the, the PR guy, the publicity guy. And he was recalling the very first screening of The Exorcist in which they showed it to a theatre and people were horrified. People were just horrified. People were reeling up the aisles. People were running. I mean, people were just horrified. And everyone's reaction, like the Warner Brothers, and he said that the executive's initial reaction was, we should just shelve this. We should just pretend this film doesn't exist. We should bury it. And they were, he said they were all in a state of shock. And he was there, and he tells this story about this meeting. And he says, this head Warner executive comes up to me and says, Joe, what happened? What, what did we just see? What happened? And Joe Himes goes, I don't know. But everyone is outside in the car park and they're not going anywhere. And they went outside and he said, you could hear the sound of all these people going, and he said, that was when we knew. So it went from literally, we should bury this film because it's an abomination and it's making people physically sick to go out into the parking lot, listen to that sound. That's the sound of a hit. And I love that. I just love that. Like you say, you, you come out and people just talking about it because they can't believe what they just saw. Yeah, it's true. I, I think it's absolutely the mark of a... When we used to do comedy shows back in college, I remember one of my mates saying to me after the show, listen how everyone's riffing after the show. All of a sudden the audience was riffing with each other. And then you know that they like the comedy show because they picked up what you're doing and they're doing it. And that vibe is in the air. And I think if, if art has any magic to it or craft or whatever we're calling it, uh, it's that. It's that. It, it's a genuine reaction. You couldn't. You can't. Ma- you know what I mean? The Exorcist is a wild, horrible, repugnant thing, and very heavy, and has a million sub meanings. But everyone talking because it, it, it's that visceral. And of course, it opened on Boxing Day. It was a Christmas movie. It opened on Boxing Day. Oh, dude, I like, saw Godfather Two on Christmas Day with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing, the other thing about Die Hard just to kind of bring this to a close is just as an indication of how great it is, you know, everyone can quote everything, you know, now I have a machine gun and you know, all that stuff, the sequel Die Hard 2, which isn't terrible, but it's, it's not Die Hard. There's only one line that I remember from uh, Die Hard 2. You'll remember this as well. Other than how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice is the thing when he has to go over to the desk because they've got a fingerprint and it's being faxed over and, the woman behind the desk pulls the the facts off and she hands it to him and because he's Bruce Willis he's got the twinkle and she says is there anything else and he goes just the facts ma'am like, that is a good joke that is a good joke <laughs> oh Greg well listen you've put it you've put a spring in my step you really have and you know I'm just I feel I can face the world anew you know certain that good people will prevail i wish you a very happy christmas a very happy new year to you and jen i hope i see you soon when all this madness is behind us and uh yeah happy christmas from stinky rainy uk to whatever the weather is like out there it's pretty nice coldish but clear as they say you don't know the meaning of cold you don't know the meaning of cold yeah we were laughing about it yesterday because we took a walk jennifer and i and um I went, oh my God, I'm cold. <clears throat> and I'm like, everything's conditional. Because London has that special, England has that special cold, having toured there many times in the winter, where your feet and hands stop moving and you're inside. 
and you're like, all I want to do is eat hobnobs. You know, <laughs> there's that moment in England where you're like, how are my bones cold? It might not even be snowing, you know, like sometimes it's not. And then you go to like Newcastle, as you say. And I remember being there in the winter in like, I don't know, 97. <clears throat> we were touring in like February. So we're there. And it's blistering cold and we're all bundled up with hats on and all the girls and guys walk by and skirts and shorts, shorts, skirts, yeah, yeah, yeah. T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because, hey, fuck it. And know. no coat checks. No coat no, checks. Yes, exactly. That was the part that we were like, what? You know, like, <laughs> like they don't yeah, even no, know. Don't even bring a coat in because. No, no, no. They're built of solid stock. And uh, yeah. Well, happy Christmas yeah. to you, mate. And uh, I happy hope you Christmas. have a groovy new year. And thank you for having me on again. I appreciate it. And anytime you want to, you know, like I said, in a month's time, things will be different. We may want to check in in a couple months. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's do it. Let's do it at the beginning of February. Let's check in and, you know, see whether the, the, the pendulum is swinging the other way. Anyway, lots of love. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, all the usual stuff, subscribe. Go over and visit our Patreon page. Greg, where can people find you? Thank you for asking. I'm at gregproops.com. And uh, Jennifer and I have a new podcast out this week where we talk about the, of the awesome Josephine Baker, who they just put in the Pantheon in Paris. And um, Mike Nesmith from The Monkees, uh, speaking Aww. of showbiz. And um, then we're going to do one this week about Stephen Sondheim. And we, uh, Jennifer and I are doing a couple more. The, the podcast is free to download, The Smartest Man in the World. Then I'll be playing in San Francisco if you have any friends who are going to San Francisco over uh, New Year's week. We're doing a live podcast, my first one in two years so wow. i'm pretty excited about that and then um i'm back on the road with the who's line guys ryan styles and whatnot um we actually have been on the road for a couple months with the audience masked and vaccinated so we're really trying to keep everybody safe very we'll good. be back on the road in january very good okay lots of love everyone stay safe happy christmas happy new year A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.